here's the thing. The only thing that really sets us free is to believe that the order of death really isn't as big a deal as it thinks it is. You have to believe that there's something much bigger than your singular experience. There's something so much more even than death for us to be a part of. If not, we'll never be able to experience the freedom that we're called to. And ultimately, we'll never be able to be the witnesses, the prophets that God is asking us to be. in this space where we're setting up this great cosmic games that we as followers of Jesus are in the, in the stadium. We are competing in these games. And the way that we compete matters because in how we compete, it tells the world how strong our God is. This is, this is the fundamental reality of games in the first century. For them, it's not about pride in your country. It's about who your God is. And this, the God gave us this athlete. And therefore, the way in which I compete reflects the strength of the God that made me. And that's really important for you and I. Because how we, how we live out our life, how we run our race, matters. It matters. And so I want to make sure that we understand going into this seventh trumpet in chapter 10, and we're going to look at chapters 10 and 11 today, um, that as we go into this trumpet, um, that we understand that the, the games are inaugurated. We're about to begin. And the first thing that we begin with is the two witnesses, and, and what in the world is that? Um, and so we'll take a look at that. But let's begin reading. And we're going to see some things. We'll stop and offer some commentary along the way, and, and uh, we'll pull it apart. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. Now, if you have uh, Old Testament savvy, if you know your Old Testament well, you're like, man, this sounds familiar, that's because it is. This is not a new image that John has come up with. This is straight out of the book of Ezekiel. And what we're going to see in this section of scripture this week is Ezekiel, 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 Ezekiel. Um, a few weeks ago, we said it was hashtag read Zechariah. This is hashtag read Ezekiel this week. So this image is from Ezekiel. And again, the question is why? Why is John pulling from these backwards metaphors? The reason is because he's trying to keep the mind of his people not launching forward, but looking back into the text. And the reason for that is the reminder that we've been here before. We can endure this because we have already. We know that we can because this isn't the first time that God's people have been here. And that's important for us to keep in mind. He had a little scroll open in his hand. A little scroll open in his hand. And he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. What is that about? We'll take a look at it in just a little bit. And called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. Roar. Last week I did an eagle scream, and that was like, people were like, huh. Um, it was softer. This is a more gentler me. See how the Holy Spirit, even in one week, can change a person's heart. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said. Don't talk about those. 
and do not write it down. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, and the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay. Now let me ask you a question. If you're one of the first readers of this book, and you read that there's going to be no more delay, how do you feel? Because for them, it feels like the space that they're in has been going on and on and on, and it's been hard, and the angel raises his right hand and swears to the creator of all things, there's not going to be any more delay. Yes. But that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. If you're taking notes, underline that. His servants, the prophets. Hang on to that. Hang on to it. Don't forget it. That God's going to give this resolution to his servants, the prophets. Now, I want to show you a picture, and before I show it to you, I want you to know it is PG-13. Um, but it's important for us to take a look at this and start looking. What does it mean that this angel has one foot on the sea and one foot on the land? So let's take a look at this photo. Um, this is Emperor Claudius, and this is actually a relief taken from this massive street with these five-by-five five carvings. Uh, there's, there's like 183 of them. It's, it's huge. Um, and, and all of the carvings tell a story about the mythology of Rome and the greatness of the Roman Empire. And, and so they, the uh, bottom row is people, the second row is the gods, and the top row is the emperors. And, and this is one of those reliefs. It's actually in Aphrodisias, the same place that the stadium was that we looked at last week. If you come with me to Turkey, you can actually see this. Um, so Claudius, the emperor, is, first of all, let's look at the obvious. He's naked. And I don't, I don't want to be crass with this. Nudity in Roman sculpture always represents deity. So it's so important for us to, like, they don't have newspapers, they don't have the internet, they don't have radio, they don't have any of that. And so they communicated global messaging two ways, coins and sculpture. So the sculpture speaks a message. So anytime that, a, that someone is sculpted nude, that means that they are God wrapped in flesh. So this speaks to how they see Claudius. Now, second thing that we need to note is that on one side, you have a mermaid, right? See that? Uh, here's her tail, and this is her, okay? On the other side, you have a woman with this thing up here. This is a cornucopia, and it's a cornucopia with all the fruits and produce and stuff coming out of it. This picture is Claudius. By the way, anytime that someone is put on their knees, that's a position of defeat, so what this is saying is Claudius, God in man form, has conquered the land and the sea. Do you see the picture? This is what he's, this is, this is a common metaphor in the world of first century Rome. And so this idea is that when the angel comes and has one foot on the sea and one foot on the land, I rule it all. And that's an important thing for them to realize. It's a callback to who's sitting on the throne in the throne room of the universe. It's important that John keeps reminding them of this over and over and over in the book. Why? Because it's going to be really easy for him to forget. It's going to be really easy for them to forget. Let's keep reading in Revelation. And then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, go take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and the land. Remember that little scroll he has? So I went to the angel and told him, give me that little scroll. <laughs> and he said to me, take it and eat it. 
It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. There's, I could preach a whole sermon on this. Um, the way that the scripture, like, when it's good, but man, the living out of it is hard. It's difficult. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it, and it was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Now, let's think about this. If, again, if, you, if, if you're Old Testament savvy, this eating a scroll that is sweet in your mouth but makes your stomach be like, man, that sounds familiar. Where's that from? Ezekiel. And one of the issues that we have with understanding Revelation is that we don't, we don't know the source material, right? And this is an issue because if you don't know your Old Testament well, how in the world can you understand Revelation and getting the books, the, the stuff that it's gleaned from? Like we, but if we're not careful, if we don't have a good grasp, a good understanding of our Old Testament, then when we come to Revelation, we start thinking it's about some future event between Russia and Lebanon. I don't know Ezekiel. You should read it. And I hear so much, so much. Well, you know, the New Testament is like Jesus. You know, it's just, I just kind of try to focus on Jesus. and the, ah, You don't know Jesus if you don't know your Old Testament scriptures. Like that's, you, every, Jesus is the living word. Here's what that means. Everything that he says and everything that he does, it's in the text. But be very, very clear. The text that he's in is, I mean, the New Testament wasn't written yet. So when they call him the living word, it's not the New Testament that he represents. It's the scriptures that had already been written. Like if we don't know those scriptures well, we can't understand who Jesus is. That's what Paul writes to Timothy. All scripture, all of it is God-breathed. What's scripture? What's he talking about? The New Testament didn't exist. So what scripture is he talking about? It's the Old Testament. These scriptures that have been around for thousands of years before Jesus showed up. Like that's, we've got to know our Old Testament text. We've got to know it. Or we'll never be able to wrestle well with things like Revelation. Like, but we're New Testament Christians. <laughs> True. And you can't understand it without having a firm grasp of your Old Testament scriptures. Like that truth will never change. That's, that's a Leviticus? We might do a sermon series through Leviticus sometime. You guys think Revelation's tough. <laughs> I've done it. When, when we were in uh, um, Idaho before we came here, the last two years that I was there, we took the six most difficult books of the Bible and did sermon series through all of them. So I was like, you guys are ninnies. Let's go. Let's, let's do this. Uh, it's amazing. Here's the thing that I think is so important about understanding all this reference from Ezekiel. Ezekiel, God tells Ezekiel, you have to prophesy to the people. You have to prophesy to the people. And so he does. And he prophesies, listen, this is the end of empire. It's coming. It's self-destructing because that's the way empire works. It's the way of the world. And it seems powerful and strong. But when empire takes the place of God's sovereignty in our life, it collapses. It will. It, will. It, it has to because it's built on principles that don't function uh, consistent with the created order. So what he says to John is, he says, 
You must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Why? Why do I have to prophesy again? Ezekiel already prophesied. Why do I have to do it again? Here's why, John. Because here we are again. And this is, this is the way the world functions. It just keeps cycling back around to this place where people take advantage of other people. And governmental systems take advantage of, of people. And, and it just keeps cycling back around to this place. And so here we are again, John. you got to prophesy again. Tell the people to endure. Because bad things are coming. They can pray for deliverance. But until that day comes, they have to overcome. They, you, you have to prophesy again. I, I wonder if... Um, since the writing of Revelation, if this cycle has happened in human history again. <laughs> the answer to that is yes. Because it happens. It happens. It's the way the world works. Like you have to prophesy and keep prophesying. Keep telling the people to hang in there, to not lose heart, to not compromise their faith. Keep telling the people to endure. Even in the midst of tremendous suffering, keep going. Because how you run your race tells the world how strong your God is. So when we live a faith full of compromise, we're making a statement about who our God is. We can't do that. I had, a, I had an interesting conversation this last week, and, and the crux of it was, when do you confront someone's sin, and when do you not? And the conversation was, you know, Sometimes it feels like I'm telling people that you should never confront sin. I can tell you that there's nothing further from the truth. You should confront sin. You should confront sin. But there's some criteria about how we confront sin. Okay? It's, it's not just going out and finding everyone that I think is wrong and telling them. Right? That doesn't work. Or even if somebody comes through the door of our church and this, this is my church. Well, first of all, that's problematic because no, it isn't. It's his church. It's his church. But I belong here only in as much as you represent him because it's his church. I, the self, the flesh, has no business here. But as much as I can represent God... I have a place at the table. So who, how do I, how do I confront it? I, I would say there's a couple of things. And this is rooted in, you know, you just tell people to love each other. Just love each other. Well, love doesn't have zero boundaries. Right? That's, think about raising children. Like in a simple example, you're raising children. Love isn't, don't have any boundaries. Those are kids that are miserable. They're, themselves, they're miserable. And they're miserable to be around right? You know kids that are raised without boundaries. It's like, that doesn't work. Love doesn't, what we often do in our culture is say love is just blind acceptance. We just, just accept. I don't love an addict by giving them drugs because they want them. That's not loving. So there is a place in love to draw boundaries on what's good and what isn't good. But it has to be done in love. So I would say criteria number one for confronting sin is you better have a really good relationship with the person first. Don't just randomly walk up to somebody that you don't know and tell them how wrong you think they are. Because for the record, it doesn't work. Because the goal isn't behavior modification. The goal is transformation of their heart. Moral correctness isn't the goal of Christianity transformation of our heart is. 
And so we got to make sure that in the process of talking to someone about their sin or in being talked to about our sin, that we receive it or give it in such a way that um, we're able to see the, how much you care for my heart. And that takes time. You don't just walk into that relationship. Well, you know, we've had, we've had two dates, so let me tell you everything that I think you're doing wrong. That's the moment where you get socked in the mouth and walked away from. You're like, I was just being honest. Yeah, but the right thing done the wrong way becomes the wrong thing. And and so it's important for us to recognize, like criteria number one is I got to be in a good relationship with them. Criteria number two is I've actually got to love them more than I love being right. I may be completely right, but I got to love them because God loves people. You got to love them more than I love being right. If I can't stand under those two criteria, I should not be confronting sin in that person's life. I can love them. I can receive them and welcome them uh, into the, to the space, like the church space or these spaces where we come together as a community. I don't have to accept what they're doing to do that, but I better earn the right to confront sin. I can't just be a, look how wrong you are. Think about parenting. Go back to thinking about parenting. Raise your kids. Don't ever tell them that you love them, but tell them every time you think they're wrong. How's that going to go? Human relationship doesn't work that way. So I don't know why we think we're doing God any favors by, well, I'm a, but it's the truth. Yeah, but you're a jerk. (laughs) And that's more important. I told you I'm not rehearsed. I'm not rehearsed. Um, I'm a little raw today. All right, let's keep reading. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff. Okay, where, where does this come from? Ezekiel. That's, the, that's like the right answer for every question today. Rise. I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there, but do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out for it is given over to the nations and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. Okay, mathematicians, how long is 42 months? Huh? Three and a half years. Three and a half years. It'll be uh, the holy city for four, and I will grant authority to my two witnesses. And they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sl- Okay, any other mathematicians? How long is 1260 days? It's also three and a half years. So that's interesting. Three and a half and three and a half and three and a half. What is that? Three and a half. Think Jewish. And, the, and I, I won't pull apart a lot of numbers, but this one's important. Think about this. Three and a half is half of what? Seven. What's seven represent in the Bible? No! Don't say perfection. Perfection is not a biblical concept. It represents completion. Completion. We keep striving to be perfect rather than trying to be whole. Perfect misses the mark. And I I know as soon as I say that, some of you guys are going to be like, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Go look at the Greek. That's not what it says. It says, be holy as your Father in heaven is holy. And it's not the same thing. Well, holy, holiness is perfection. No, it's completeness. It's completeness. Why three and a half? Why half of completion? Here's why. Because this period of time where there, people are trouncing on the holy city, this difficulty of, of enduring all this hardship, that isn't the complete story. You know what that means? Your persecution has a shelf life. It's not going to be the end. It's n- <laughs> Maybe you haven't suffered, but for these first readers, they would have been coming out of their chairs over that. You mean this isn't the end? No. No, it's not. No, 
way so we can endure this. Yep. And I'm going to send the two witnesses in that time period where there's a lot of suffering going on, and they are going to prophesy. Now, who are the two witnesses? <laughs> I don't... <laughs> That's the wrong answer, but you get a level of Torah for that. That was awesome. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> that was awesome. So, <laughs> uh, remember that thing when I was talking about you guys talking back to me? Um, I mean, I'm thinking about retracting it. <laughs> That's awesome. Thank you for that. No, I, so who are the two witnesses? I, I don't know if you guys remember the book series Left Behind, right? Remember that book? And, and they made the movie out of it, right? We were so excited to see it. Like, come on, Kirk Cameron, come on. Um, let's go. The, uh, who are the two witnesses? This was a big piece of that story, right? Who are the two witnesses? Here's the thing. Let's think Jewish for just a second. Since John has been so Jewish in the way that he's been writing this section, let's consider the possibility that he's still thinking Jewish when he writes the two witnesses. Jews would not have tried to look forward to figure out who the two witnesses were going to be. They would have gone back into the text. Because everything's in the text. Now think about it. Who are the two prophets, the two greatest prophets in the Old Testament? Moses would be one for sure. Moses wrote Torah. Moses led the people. Mo Moses. Moses. Who was the one who kind of is the prophet's prophet? Like he's had the fire, the kana of God. Who's that? Elijah. These are the two witnesses. If you're Jew, ask an Orthodox Jew, who are the two witnesses in the Old Testament? Moses and Elijah. Every time. Moses and Elijah. These are the two witnesses. Now, there are a lot of stories in Jewish Midrash. And, and Midrash is not inspired. It's not scripture. But there's... It, it, it's not a one-to-one -one comparison, but consider it like Jewish commentary. Um, it's, it's a way for them to expand and unpack the text as they read it. Um, and so there's a lot of stories that put Moses and Elijah together. I'll give you one example. Um, Psalm 42 and 43 which were actually written to be read together. They were, they were, they were supposed to be sung at the same time. Um, and you can tell that because the, the chorus, the refrain is the same. And so um, these psalms were meant to be sung in times of great persecution. This is when you're supposed to sing Psalm 42 and 43. Kind of like when we sing that opening song, I'll praise when surrounded, I'll praise when outnumbered, I'll praise when surrounded, because my praise is the water my enemies drowned in. Like, like, do we really believe that? Like, we can sing it and jump around when the music's all hype, but what happens when we're actually in a difficult circumstance? Are we praising? These are meant to be worshipped to the Lord Songs of worship to the Lord when we're facing great persecution. Is there any relevance to the first readers of Revelation in that? The answer to that is yes. Here's what it says. To the choir master, a mascal of the sons of Korah. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you. O God, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Now, that part sounds familiar, right? Because you sang that song growing up if you were in church. As the deer panteth for the water, right? So my soul longeth after thee. Courses have come a long way since then, but 
They actually use words that I would use now. Um, my tears have been my food day and night while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Does this have any application to the first readers of Revelation? These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How would I go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival? Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon. From Mount Mizar, deep calls to deep and the roar of your, at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love. What am I supposed to do in these times when people are shouting at me, where is your God? What am I supposed to do with him? God commands his steadfast love. For who? For the ones who are shouting at me, where is your God? And at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten about me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Again, any application to the first readers of Revelation. As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Why are you down, cast down, O my soul? And why are you in, in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Now that's the end of 42. And then 43 says this, vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people. From the deceitful and unjust man, deliver me. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Send out your light and your truth. Okay, so how do I deal with this? God, deliver me. How do I get delivered? God, send me your light and your truth. Let them lead me, let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Now, let's stop there and talk about this. When, when a Jewish person thinks about light and truth, they don't think about what is light and what is truth. They think about who is light and who is truth. Well, let's think about truth for just a second. Who is truth? It, the, the, the Midrash taught, and, and again, you're going to have to keep in mind the people that wrote this didn't know Jesus yet. Jesus wasn't on the scene yet. So we would say, yes, 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 Jesus, of course. But they, they, they wouldn't have said Jesus because they don't know Jesus yet. So whose truth? Who is the truth? Well, the prophets bring the truth. Who are the greatest prophets? Moses and Elijah. We already established that. So these are the two witnesses. But what about light? Who, who's the light? Well, the Midrash for, for this section of Psalms says this. Messiah is the light. Moses and Elijah are the truth, but Messiah is the light. So when we're struggling, we pray for Moses. We pray for Elijah. And we pray for Messiah. This is the Jewish way to throw us back into the scriptures so that we don't forget that we can endure because we have. It, it's, it's a way to keep from focusing on getting consumed in the circumstances of today and God stop waiting and just show up. It's a way for us to go back and say, we've been here before and this may get really bad, but we're going to be okay. That's what it means to pray for light and pray for truth. And then it goes on to say, and then I will go to the altar of God, to, uh, to God my exceeding joy. And I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. Why are you cast down, O my soul? 
And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. This is, this is so important because John writing this down, he's like Ezekiel reference. You got to prophesy again. Now, remember, remember that part that, um, that I said, don't forget this part. I said it like four times. Don't hang on to this part. Because if you're taking notes, underline it. Do you remember that part? Yeah, what was it? Yeah, God's going to give these things to the prophets. This resolution, he's going to give this thing to the prophets. Who are the prophets? <laughs> Watch what God does. Continuing on in Revelation 11. These, who are these? The two witnesses. Remember, we, we, took a, we took a detour there, so it might have been a little bit confusing to hang on to that one. But Revelation 11.3 ends with, I'm going to give these to the two, the, we're going to have two witnesses that are going to prophesy for 1260 days. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. You guys should be going, no way, because you're experts in Zechariah, right? The olive trees, the two olive trees in the book of Zechariah are God's people. The olive tree always represents God's people. Now the lampstands, we don't even have to get out of the book of Revelation for that one. Where do we see lampstands show up in Revelation? Where did we begin? With the churches, the letters to the churches. What are the churches represented by? Lampstands. God says if you don't get this resolved, I'm going to remove your lampstand. Right? So what is the lampstand? It's the people of God. The two olive trees are the people of God and the two lampstands are the people of God and he does it twice to confirm it by two witnesses. You're like, what, what are you talking about? Pray for Moses, pray for Elijah, and pray for Messiah. Yes, 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 absolutely. But understand this, in the world that you live in, you are Moses, you are Elijah, and you are Messiah. I, I, I don't know that much. It's how we run the race. And if anyone would harm them, who? Them who? The people of God. If anyone would harm them, fire pours out of their mouth and consumes their foes. Yeah, that sounds awesome. That sounds dope. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophecy. Who shut the sky? Who was the one who caused it to not rain? Elijah. And how long did it not rain for? Three and a half years. And they have the power over the waters to turn them into blood. Who turned the waters into blood? Moses. Just for those of you that were doubting me. And to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. Wait, what? That doesn't sound awesome. We're supposed to be able to consume them with the fire that comes out of our mouth. And we think that's the symbol of power. Listen to me. First of all, it's not the fire of the sword. It's the fire of the word. But here's the other thing that's really, really important. Fire, all through scripture, is not a metaphor for con consuming someone. It's a metaphor for the presence of God. So the way that we conquer our enemies is to speak Jesus. Like you got to hear that. You, it's not about, I'm going to out-debate you, and you're going to be wrong and feel stupid, and I'm going to dominate, and, and I'm going to be like, God, and you will die. 
It's when we get in those spaces, as we represent the Father correctly with our words, their power falls away. And the world, piece by piece by piece, gets put back together. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom in Egypt where the Lord was crucified. That's Jerusalem. For three and a half days. Yeah, they'll get made fun of. Those people that get killed, they'll be mocked. Yep. But that mocking has an end date. Trouble comes in the night, but joy is coming in the morning. And from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations that will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb, those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. Yeah, yeah, you are. When you actually start representing God in the world, it's a problem. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them. Where's this from? Ezekiel, chapter 37, the valley of dry bones. Oh God, can you make these bones live? And they stood up on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. Now who else went up in a fiery chariot after God said, come up here? Elijah. Just to drive the point home. And they went up to heaven in a cloud and their enemies watched them. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake and the tenth of the city fell and 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake. And the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. And the second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. And we're gonna stop there uh, with the scriptures. So I want to wrestle with this question briefly. What's at stake in these games? We've been talking about these games over the last couple of weeks. As we get into these games and we start competing and we look at how we're supposed to live as these two witnesses, these, these living examples of God being spoken even in the midst of a beast who wants to kill and consume us. What's at stake in these games? The answer to that is everything. The way that you run, the way that you prophesy tells the world how strong your God is. And I think too many of us have such an anemic faith that our God looks weak. If you choose to step into these games, be very clear. What this passage says is you're doomed. You will die. That's the promise made to these first readers of Revelation. Like, okay, well then I'm out. No. Because death always leads to resurrection. The central appeal for the endurance in the book of Revelation for the people to endure is something that has already happened. It's the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus himself. The testimony of the faithful witnesses, the message of the prophets that's going to be given, by the way, that's you and me. It isn't rooted in conversion. It's rooted in resurrection. Even death doesn't have the final word. Let it go. And, and I, I think, my wife and I were actually talking about this this week. One of the things that I think we struggle with so badly, and, and, and you know, one of the reasons why this week has been so heavy, is that it's exposed to me how hard I hang on to this world. Death isn't the end. It's a transition. Think of this life as the birthing process. For those of you who have given birth, easy or hard? I, I can tell you this, I've, I've watched it happen three times and that's enough to know I don't ever want to have to do it. Um, the, 
It's hard. The birthing process is hard. That's this life. But once we're born, we're born into something really, really beautiful. For, for those who really cling to resurrection, death can't come fast enough. Because I want to, I'm, I'm ready. Like, I'm ready. And that doesn't a death wish. That's not a, it's not evil or self-deprecating or whatever. It's not any of that. that. But that's why Paul can say to live is Christ, but to die is gain. Like as long as we live in this birth canal, there's work to be done. But the minute that God says you're delivered, oh, I want to go. I want to go home. Here's the thing. The only thing that really sets us free is to believe that the order of death really isn't as big a deal as it thinks it is. You have to believe that there's something much bigger than your singular experience. There's something so much more even than death for us to be a part of. If not, we'll never be able to experience the freedom that we're called to. And ultimately, we'll never be able to be the witnesses, the prophets that God is asking us to be. And so I have some implications for us this morning. We're going we're gonna to work through those. Uh, our communion team is going to go back and grab communion. That's why all the people are getting up and leaving. So if you're like, this is my chance to escape. No, it isn't. Um, in another hour, we'll be done. Just hang on. Um, no, I want to I work through these implications. But while they're passing that out, if you're new with us, we take communion together every week as a family. Um, if you're willing to say that Jesus is your Lord and Savior, then we have an open table. You're, you're invited to take communion with us. But we want you to hold those elements till the end. We'll take them all together at one time. Implication number one is this. God's created order is eternal. Everything else is temporary. Whether that's possessions or comfort or cancer, which is hard because I think we've all at least known somebody who's fought that battle. And some of them win and some of them lose in that battle. But do the losers really lose? Cancer is temporary. Even if it takes us to the tomb, it doesn't get to have the final word. Resurrection does. Implication number two. When others oppress you, pray for light. Pray for truth. Pray for Messiah. Go back and search the stories of the faithful who have gone before us to see that we can endure and we know we can endure because we have. Implication number three. God's people <coughs> are the prophetic witness to the world, particularly in times of trial and tribulation. And, and again, I, I, one of the struggles that I think we have as the American church is that we haven't suffered. We haven't suffered persecution. We, some of us have individual suffering, but we haven't suffered as a, as a Christian body um, real trial and tribulation. We haven't. Um, and so it's really difficult for us to understand that. But what we see historically is any time that Christianity uh, rises to affluence, it struggles. It flourishes in trials and tribulation. Almost as if, if you really are serious about saying, Lord, I want to grow in my faith, you should be praying for something in that realm. Because how we live, how we speak, how we prophesy, tells the world how strong our God is. In a way that our success and affluence can't. 
Implication number four. When trouble comes, don't just pray for light. Be the light. Don't just pray for truth. Be the truth. Don't just pray for Messiah. Be the Messiah in the world. By the way, you are. Whatever version of him you represent to the world is what they understand to be true. This is the testimony. It's the way it works. If you're in our online campus, you can pause right here, get your uh, elements together, and then come back and hit play again, and we'll take communion together. But for us in the room, I just want to wrestle with this question as we get our hearts ready um, for, to take communion together. How am I doing? Don't answer that question for me. Answer it for yourself. How, how am I doing? How are we doing at actually being light, being truth, and being Messiah in the world? How are we doing at being the two witnesses? Because the only way for the message of the gospel to endure is for us to witness for him well. Maybe the, there's something getting in the way. There's a roadblock there. A relationship, a sin, uh, some emotional belief system that's wonky. I, I don't know. I don't know what it is for you. Um, Holy Spirit does. And so I would ask maybe as we get our hearts ready for communion that you talk to the Lord about that. Like God, reveal to me what is the space in which I need to grow in you. Let's take a minute and talk with him as we get our hearts ready. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is given for you. So whenever you eat this bread, do it in remembrance of me. Let's remember him together. And then after the dinner, he took a cup and he said, this cup is the blood of the covenant, which is shed for you. So whenever you drink this cup, do it in remembrance of me. Let's pray. God, everything that we cling to, the idols that get in our heart, the things that we strive to hold on to while we're still trying to serve you. God, would you reveal those to us so that we can lay them down to become everything that you've intended us to be, believing that nothing in this world is even worth comparing with the glory that you will reveal in us one day. And so we long for that, Lord. Jesus, come back. We're, we're ready. In your name, amen. 